Hello and welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. This episode will be looking at Lutprand, the king of the Lombards. Lutprand pulled together a kingdom in Italy from various disunited Lombard dukedoms and created a state that was the most powerful one on the peninsula since the Byzantines held it centuries earlier. As always, maps and images can be found on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at almostforgottenpodcast.gmail.com or find me on Twitter, at the Almost Forgot. This is Season 7, Episode 5, Lutprand, and this is The Almost Forgotten. Lutpran was born in the latter part of the 7th century AD to a powerful duke of the disunited Lombard kingdom of northern Italy. But Lutpran's early life would not give him an easy path to power. In the early 700s, when he was an adult, Italy was a turbulent place. But so was the rest of the region. To the south, the Umayyad Caliphate ruled from the Pillars of Hercules to the eastern shores of the Mediterranean across the Iranian plateau to Bactria. And in 711 AD, they invaded the Iberian Peninsula, conquering most of Visigothic Spain within five years. North of that, the semi-independent Duchy of Aquitaine bordered their official suzerain, the Frankish Kingdom. The Franks stretched from the western shores on the Atlantic east through central Germany. To the north, Anglo-Saxon England was in the period of the Heptarchy, while the Britons were divided into many states in Wales. Scandinavian kingdoms were beginning to coalesce out of Germanic tribes, a Danish kingdom emerged, and there was clear growth and development as Viking expansion would begin in earnest before the century was out. South and east, the Avars were moving into Pannonia, the Magyars were still on the Pontic steppe north of the Black Sea, and the Bulgarian Empire began to push into Byzantine territory. The Byzantines themselves ruled much of Greece and Anatolia. They still had a foothold in Italy and held tightly onto Sicily, which wouldn't fall to the Arabs until the 800s. But the Byzantines were reeling from the Arab conquests of the last century, and that threat was far from over. An ambitious attempt at the conquest of Constantinople by the Umayyads in 717 ultimately failed, preserving the empire and eventually allowing it to recover significantly. The Khazars ruled much of the lands of the Caucasus and the steppe to the north, while on the steppe further east, various Turkic confederations ruled. India was fragmented, with many kingdoms and some republics vying for power. To the north of India was a growing regional power, the relatively new Tibetan Empire, and east of that, the Tang dynasty of China had firmly established itself. The Chenla ruled a large part of the Southeast Asian mainland, while Srivijaya was approaching the height of its power, ruling over the Malay Peninsula, Sumatra, and much of Java. Across the Pacific, the Pueblo culture was in development, and the Maya were in the middle of their classical period on the Yucatan. The Wari and the Tiwanaku empires ruled over the complex civilizations, of the Andes. Back in Italy, well, 
As I said, things were turbulent. Complicated might be a good word for it. Much of Italy in the early 7th century was ruled by the Lombards. The Lombards were, as I said, disunited, but they were the most powerful group there, or bunch of groups. The Lombards, like many of their fellow Germanic tribes that eventually decided to retire in the Mediterranean sun, were originally from Scandinavia. At least, that's what their own history tells us. They are first historically attested in northern Germany, near Denmark, so it's a sensible conclusion to say that that's quite probably accurate. The Romans, who knew of them in the first century AD, called them the Langobardi and considered them a fierce and independent, if smaller, Germanic tribe. Langobardi meant long beards, and before giving themselves this moniker, they were called the Winnelli, or wolves. In the 400s AD, they began migrating further south and east. They battled the Huns at some point and made their way into Bohemia, establishing their kingdom there in the middle of the century. By the end of the century, they had migrated further south and east, in and around the area the Romans called Pannonia. They were along the Danube, near today's eastern Austria, western Slovakia, and northwest Hungary. Much of this was Roman land, formerly, and many of the people there were Romans, or at least Romanized. The Langobardi established their kingdom with these people as subjects, and that interaction seemed relatively peaceful. After all, there was an established economy here. Why destroy it? Now, this brought them into greater contact with the Roman world, not just the people that used to live as Roman subjects. Rather, now they were neighbors with the mighty Roman Empire. Okay, the Western Roman Empire was basically toast at this point, but the Eastern Roman Empire was still pretty darn mighty. The Byzantines were working to regain Italy from the Germanic kingdom that had been established there. And so the Emperor Justinian allied with the Lombard king in order to get some help. This was an official Roman alliance. They became federati. That is to say, Byzantium gave them money and lands in exchange for military service, and the Lombards moved further south into southern Pannonia. Wars with the neighboring Gepids, another Germanic tribe, broke out in the middle of the 6th century, and Justinian negotiated a peace. As part of the peace treaty, he had a few thousand Langobardi warriors help out with his war to retake Italy. But the Byzantine general Narsus didn't let them accompany his troops too far on account of their bad behavior. This was, after all, lands that the Byzantines were trying to take and then rule peacefully. Despite this, they remained loyal Roman allies, and when their ill-behaved warband eventually made their way home, they had quite a haul with them. And according to Neil Christie in his book, The Ancient Langobards, quote, the most important factor relating to this episode was that the Langobards had had a taste of Italy and seen something of its lands, towns, and fortresses, as well as part of the character of Byzantine warfare. This knowledge put them in very good stead for later events, unquote. That's what we in the business call foreshadowing. But for the time being, the alliance with Byzantium faded as did the treaty with the Gepids. The Avars, a group of steppe nomads, entered the region, and the Langobards allied with them, defeating the Gepids and allowing this new, more powerful neighbor to move in. This caused a bit of a problem. The Langobards weren't necessarily interested in standing toe-to-toe with the Avars, so while they did beat up their old rival, the Gepids, they didn't actually get to become the big boys in the neighborhood. 
and their king, Albuin, wasn't growing in power, so he thought, maybe it's time to leave the neighborhood and find a new one. Their destination? Italy, of course. Why Italy? Well, before we get to the wherefores, let's dive into the whatfores, or something like that. Italy, in the middle of the 6th century, was in an extremely weak position. Going back to the 5th century, and even earlier, as the Western Roman Empire crumbled, the towns themselves became more fortified and the countryside less populated. Successive waves of destruction and invasion increased this movement. The Visigoths in 410, then the Vandals, then Odoacer, then Theodoric, and the Ostrogoths, and that was just the 5th century. The Ostrogoths eventually gave way to the Roman Empire, the eastern one that is. Emperor Justinian reconquered first North Africa in the 520s through his famous general Flavius Belisarius. The Byzantines then retook Sicily and southern Italy before making their way to the Eternal City itself. Rome was taken in 537, but it was the capture of Ravenna in 541, which had been the Western Roman capital and then the Ostrogothic capital, that made Justinian feel like he had won. I'd feel remiss in not pointing out that this was still more than a half century before Greek replaced Latin as the official language of the Byzantine Empire. And while there are many other indicators as to when the Eastern Roman Empire became something different in our minds than the original Roman Empire, In the 6th century, it probably felt pretty close to being the original Roman Empire, but Justinian soon pulled a significant amount of forces out to deal with other conflicts. So, of course, the Ostrogoths stormed back. Narsus, a Byzantine commander who had served under Belisarius in Italy, was sent back in 551 to recapture the parts of Italy that had been lost. Well, he was actually sent as second-in-command, but the emperor's cousin, who was leading the expedition, died on the way there. Narsus may have been 70 years old at this point, and he wasn't a legendary general or anything like that, but he was part of Justinian's inner circle and had served the emperor for decades. He whooped up on the Ostrogoths and had re-established imperial control by about 553. The next year, he actually held a triumph in Rome. He was actually the last Roman to do so. But Italy still wasn't doing well. Although Narsus stayed there to control it as a governor, or exarch, they dealt with more invasions and remained in generally poor shape besides that. According to Christie, Narsus and the Byzantines, quote, slowly expelled the Franco-Gothic garrisons from sites both north and south of the river Po. Plagues, religious disputes, heavy taxation, and an economy ruined by nearly three decades of warfare now haunted the peninsula, Italy was just not in any position to deal with another massive invasion, but in 568, that's just what happened. Now, Narsus was in his late 80s, and he was having problems. He may have invited the Langobards into Italy to settle, possibly in revenge for being recalled to Constantinople for being too harsh with the citizens of the city when he rebuilt Rome. Some historians suggest he had an argument with the empress and was trying to spite her. Either way, by this point Justinian was dead, the new emperor didn't have any sympathy, and Narsus maybe didn't care anymore? One other possibility? Narsus had actually died the year before, and the Langobards saw an opening during a power vacuum. 
What we do know is that the Langobard king, Alboin, made a clear and deliberate decision to migrate his people to Italy. He probably took at least 150,000 people with him on the march from Pannonia to Italy, although some estimates put it as high as 400,000. They left right after Easter, 568, and marched, families and all, down to the Alps along what is today the border of Austria, Italy, and Slovenia. They may have stopped for the winter there and not entered Italy until the spring of 569. I mean, this isn't Hannibal marching in to surprise the Roman Republic we're talking about here. When they emerged from the Alps, well, let's just say we know more about what happened with Hannibal nearly 800 years earlier. Eastern Roman sources are pretty silent. The Byzantines were occupied in the east, and there wasn't much resistance. The Langobardi soon controlled Friuli, a region in northeast Italy, including their new capital in the city of Cividale. By the end of the year 569, they were in Milan, and they continued to expand west. According to Jan T. Hollenbach, in his book Pavia and Rome, quote, Vicenza, Verona, and Milan all fell, as did the towns of Liguria, except for those along the coast. Pavia, the eventual Lombard royal capital, was taken after a siege of three years, and in 571, Alboin's forces crossed the Apennines and absorbed much of Tuscany, unquote. It was pretty clear that the empire could do little to stop the Langobards outside of their coastal power bases, which is where they were able to hold out. The Langobards weren't necessarily, you know, impossibly strong Germanic invaders that the Romans just had no chance against. Rather, there was just a ton of them. Italy was a mess. Many people had fled to the cities and the countryside was empty. In other words, they came into a devastated and depopulated land with a crap ton of people and they just took over. They spread further south, taking lands in central Italy and even southern Italy, but they didn't fully dislodge the Byzantines from some of those coastal cities. Without the ability to dedicate significant forces to Italy, Constantinople did things like pay the Franks money to come in and harass the Lombards. But they began to consolidate their power anyway, at least in some ways. To the south of Rome and Ravenna, the duchies of Spoleto and Benevento were created by Lombard war leaders, but held no allegiance to the Lombard kingdom in the north. The 7th century saw a bit of a stalemate between the Lombards and the Exarchate of Ravenna, which is what the Byzantines now called their foothold in Italy. The Lombards controlled the north and the central and almost south. The very southern part of Italy was still controlled by the Byzantines, and the Byzantines also controlled Rome and Ravenna. Ravenna was basically due north of Rome, but by the Adriatic coast rather than the western side. The Byzantines controlled land around these cities, as well as a corridor of land between the two cities. And despite the Lombard-held duchies of Spoleto and Benevento, the empire retained Naples and Amalfi, and the Duchy of Calabria in the toe of Italy. In the middle of the 7th century, the emperor Constans actually showed up in Italy, but his influence was ephemeral, perhaps even negative, and the Lombards kept pushing the Byzantines further back. Things weren't all good for the Lombards, though. There was constant infighting, and while the Byzantines weren't a particularly strong opponent, the kingdom remained divided, and so it was weaker than it should have been, and they couldn't drive the Byzantines off of Italy. 
Meanwhile, the Franks were resurgent, and there was a Muslim threat to their south, so they were ripe for the taking. In 700 AD, their king died, and his son inherited the throne. And since the kingdom was all divided, a civil war broke out. Onsprand, one of the Lombard dukes, fought to defend the new king, who was still a minor. Onsprand was the young duke's regent. But after just a few months, an army marched against him, led by the Duke of Turin, who was descended from another Lombard king. The two dukes and their followers fought a battle near the town of Novara in northwest Italy, and Onsprand was defeated. The Duke of Turin claimed the throne, but he died shortly after the war. His son, Aripert II, declared himself king. Aripert promptly defeated Onsprand and his allies, and he captured the young king that Onsprand was protecting too. One of Onsprand's allies, named Rotherit, fled to the city of Bergamo and declared himself king, but Aripert just marched up there, took the city, and had Rotharit killed. Then he had that young king that had originally inherited the throne, when this whole civil war kicked off, killed as well. Onsprand, who had a reputation for being wise, earned his reputation in this case by finally getting the heck out of Italy. He had first fled to an island fortress on Lake Como, but when he heard Aripert was coming his way, he fled north, first to Chiavenna, a mountain town in northern Italy, then to Chur in modern Switzerland. There, Onsprand found refuge with Theodobert, the Duke of Bavaria. Bavaria at the time was the easternmost duchy of the Frankish kingdom of the Merovingians. So there you have it, right? Aripert is king, the rival child king is dead, and Onsprand is on the other side of the Alps. And back in Italy, Onsprand's son, Sigisprand, was captured and blinded by King Aripert. Despite exacting all sorts of deadly and torturous revenge against Onsprand's family, I mean, he cut the ears and noses off Onsprand's wife and daughter. He let Onsprand's youngest son just go. Maybe he wanted him to send a message to Onsprand like, I let this boy leave to tell you how mean I was to everyone else, so you better stay away. Paul the Deacon, the original source for most of this, says it was because of how young the boy was, but he was probably in his teens, so perhaps Paul the Deacon was wrong and the boy was actually with Onsprand the whole time? It would make sense. The older brother Sigisprand was old enough to command his own group of troops and was captured before he could flee. But meanwhile, the younger boy was at his father's side, still learning how to be a leader. Regardless of how he got away, at some point, this boy, Lutprand, made his way to Bavaria and was together with his father in exile. And together, they stewed. Life carried on as it had in Italy, more infighting, issues with the papacy and the neighboring Byzantine territory. It took some time to convince Theodobert, the Bavarian duke, but after nine years of waiting, in 711 AD, Onsprand marched with a Bavarian-backed army across the Alps and back into Italy. As they marched, they gained followers, and they met the army of Aripert outside of Pavia, the Lombard capital. The battle didn't go great for Ansprand, according to Paul the Deacon, who wrote, quote, There occurred a great slaughter of the people on both sides. But although at last night broke off the battle, it is certain that the Bavarians had turned their backs and that the army of Aripert had returned as a victor to its camp, unquote. Aripert, though, 
rather than staying with his army, went back into Pavia. And this seemed to change things. Something appears to be missing from the story here, but it seems like this upset his army enough that he was suddenly being advised to flee the city. Maybe it was sort of a case of, despite being victorious, a whole lot of his men died, and he had the gall to go sleep in his cushy bed that night. So everybody got mad at him. It's also possible that the battle didn't go quite as well as old Paul, he says. But the upshot is, Ari Pert decided he ought to make haste to Francia. Couldn't leave without his gold, though. So he loaded up with all the precious metals and jewelry he could carry, and he proceeded to drown trying to swim across the Ticino River right outside of Pavia. Onspran, the wise and trusted regent a dozen years earlier, suddenly became the new king in 712 AD. But it was not to last, as Onspran wasn't a young man. He soon became ill, and it was apparent he would not survive. The Lombards named his son Lutprand king, and Onsprand happily heard this news before he died. It was 712, and Lutprand, who was probably in his early 30s and had been out of Italy for a dozen years before returning on this campaign of conquest, became king of the Lombards. He was king of most of Italy. But obtaining the crown doesn't mean you just get to keep it, not in the disunited, backstabbing world of the Lombards. Soon after becoming proclaimed king, Lutpran heard that a relative of his named Rothari had planned to kill him during a banquet at his manor, where he'd hidden some weapons. Lutpran called this ungrateful cousin to the palace, and when he was discovered wearing a cuirass by the king, that is, armor, Rothari pulled out his sword and attacked. He was grabbed by the king's men before he could do anything, though, and was quickly dispatched. But that story sort of demonstrates his shaky hold on power, and to shore up his alliances and solidify that hold, Lutpran married Guntrut, the daughter of Theodoberta Bavaria. He also made overtures to the Pope in Rome, confirming some lands which had been donated and generally making sure that that relationship was still on good footing. Theodobert died a few years later, and his son Grimold became the new Duke of Bavaria after a few years of civil war with his brothers. Lutpran's first battles as king were apparently spent fighting in or against Bavaria, and details of this are very much lacking. Perhaps he was involved in the civil war, and not much is recorded, probably because the horse he bet on didn't end up winning. Meanwhile, the Duke of Spoleta, one of Lutpran's subjects, took the local Byzantine capital of Ravenna's port, a town called Cassi. But Lutpran made him return the port to the empire. This deal was brokered by Pope Gregory II, who was still technically a Byzantine subject. Not that the new king totally left the Byzantines in the Exarchate of Ravenna alone. While he allowed them to keep this port of Ravenna, the Lombards took the town of Narnia in central Italy right around this time. And yes, it is double true that this is where C.S. Lewis got the name. It is likely, however, that full-on war with Byzantium was inevitable. See, because in the mid-720s, an uprising broke out in the Exarchate. The Pope strongly disagreed with the iconoclasm that was emanating out of Constantinople, so he encouraged the Italians to resist the destruction of religious icons. It was in the midst of this controversy that the Byzantines tried to capture, and perhaps even kill, 
the Bishop of Rome, which, remember, to the Byzantines, the Bishop of Rome was very important, but he was maybe the leader of one of several incredibly important bishoprics in Christianity, all of whom were less important to Christian doctrine than the emperor himself. Of course, this wasn't necessarily how the Christians in Italy felt, who had looked to the Pope since the fall of the Western Roman Empire for at least some kind of leadership, even if it was only religious most of the time. Oh yeah, and in 725, he refused to pay taxes to Constantinople, so that might have something to do with the army coming for him. Lutpran saw this as an opportunity to take imperial territory, as it was in the midst of a civil war. So, during this war in 725, Lutpran too decided that the port of Cassie did seem like a good prize. He attacked and destroyed the city. The Lombards also joined in on the defense of the Pope, and Ravenna wasn't able to capture Gregory. As people were rising up across the Exarchate against their Byzantine overlords, and it looked like they might even name a new emperor in Italy, Pope Gregory told them all to relax. He got everyone to back down, and he decided to remain loyal to the empire, for the moment. There are a few reasons for this. Firstly, the Byzantines had just emerged from a period known as the Twenty Years' Anarchy. Leo the Isurian was the emperor. He's the one who instituted the iconoclasm, and he was relatively effective at starting the process of recovering Byzantine power. He had countered the Muslim invasions and was beginning to look effective. Gregory might not have wanted things to get bad enough for Leo to decide to show up in Rome and start pushing him around. But Gregory was also a little worried about his ally, the Lombards, and he probably wanted to keep some Byzantine presence to check their power. Meanwhile, after the exarch who had tried to kill the Pope was murdered himself, the new exarch failed in another attempt to kill the Pope and decided to approach Lutpran to form an alliance. Lutpran, no doubt annoyed that the Pope was playing both sides, decided to do the same. But more importantly, this alliance allowed him to send an army south to Spoleto, which was an independent but very much Langobard dukedom. Marching down with his flanks now protected, he received hostages and oaths of allegiance, effectively putting Spoleto into his kingdom. He did the same further south with the Duchy of Benevento. So at this point, Lutpran ruled most of Italy, probably not like 95%, but maybe like three quarters of it. From there, he headed to Rome in 730, and it looked like the Lombard king would mount an attack on the city. But rather than doing that, or attempting to punish his new enemy, the Pope, he knelt in front of Gregory and received his blessing. According to David Harry Miller, in his article for the Catholic Historical Review, quote, because of the importance of Rome's position and his own orthodoxy, Lutprand had at first aimed at peaceful union with the papacy in the acquisition and rule of Italy, unquote. In other words, yeah, he wanted to conquer the empire, but if he could do so while allying with Rome, that was his best outcome. A negotiation commenced, and Lutpran agreed to return the castle of Sutri that he had captured. But the religious king did not offer it to the empire. Rather, he offered it to the apostles Peter and Paul. In practice, this meant rather than giving the city he captured from Byzantium back to the emperor, 
he was giving it directly to the emperor's subject, the pope. Today, some consider this the beginning of the Papal States, a group of territories that were ruled by the Pope until 1870. Now, this wasn't really the case. Sure, when the Papal States sprang up, Sutri would be part of it, but at the time, Pope Gregory still thought of himself as a part of the Byzantine Empire, and an extremely important man, but not a ruler of lands or territories. Lutprand also arranged a reconciliation of the Pope and the Exarchate. This served the king's purposes because it kept secular power in the hands of the Exarch rather than the Pope. People in Italy listened to the Pope, not the Exarch, and Lutprand was limiting his rival's ability to stand against him. His goals accomplished, the alliance between Lombardy and Ravenna ended, and he was soon successfully fighting off an attack on Bologna by Exarchate forces. For his part, Lutprand took fortified cities that had been under Byzantine control, such as Monteveglio and Busseto. He also attacked the Duchy of the Pentapolis, which, unsurprisingly, was a region consisting of five cities. The five cities were on the Adriatic coast and had been part of the Pope's revolt against Ravenna, but they weren't friendly with the Lombards. It doesn't appear that he held the entirety of the region, but Miller wrote that as late as in the 750s, Quote, some additional territories in the northwest and southeast of the Exarchate and the Pentapolis, which Lutprand had taken, remained under Lombard rule. Unquote. Lutprand's diplomacy was not, however, limited to the Italian peninsula. Charles Martel, the mayor of the palace and leading force of the Frankish kingdom, sent his son Pepin, the eventual father of Charlemagne, on an embassy to Lombardy. An alliance was formed and Lutprand ceremonially adopted Pepin, and Paul the Deacon writes that the Lombards sent troops to help Charles Martel in his defense against invading Muslim armies. This almost certainly wasn't the famous Battle of Tours in 732, but more likely the Lombard army helped the Franks regain control of Provence in 736 or 737. Paul writes that the mere mention of the alliance drove the Arabs away in fear, but that's probably not quite accurate. The alliance paid off for the Lombards as well, as Lutprand marched around Italy, reigning in his dukes and threatening Rome, the Pope called on Charles Martel to send forces and help him out. Charles, being a pal of the Lombard king, refused. This wouldn't, however, be the last time the Pope begged the Franks for help against the Lombards, but patience. Lutprand's efforts in central and southern Italy were soon reversed when the Duke of Spoleto again tried to go his own way. The Duke asked for Rome's help, which was given in exchange for returning a few towns to Roman authority. When the Duke didn't live up to his end of the bargain, the Pope approached Lutprand and offered to lend forces to the king in recapturing Spoleto. This was around 742, and together, they marched south and once again pulled the duchy into the kingdom of the Lombards. Years earlier, the king had taken his nephew, who was the child of the Duke of Benevento, to be raised with him up north. So when he was down south taking care of Spoleto, he brought his now adult or nearly adult nephew back to Benevento, where he was restored as duke. This gave him a loyal subject duke, keeping Benevento in the fold. Lutprand then returned to Pavia, and he began planning further attacks on Ravenna. 
He was hopeful that with a more united kingdom under his control, he could finally take out the empire in Italy and bring together the whole of the Italian peninsula. But the new pope, this one called Zachary, came to Pavia to get the king to stand down. Perhaps it was this diplomacy, or maybe just his own health, that convinced him to do so, but either way, he did not end up launching a major attack on the Exarchate. And soon after, in 744 AD, Lutpran was dead, having been king of the Lombards for 32 years. After his death, he was succeeded by his nephew Hildeprand, but Hildeprand was overthrown by a duke, in part because the magnates were tired of war with Rome and the Eastern Romans. But this duke was overthrown himself after about five years. He was succeeded by Aistulf, who resumed the wars of conquest. Aistulf believed in all-out war against the empire, regardless of whatever the pope said. The problem with this was that the pope was not thrilled with being a subject of the Lombards, which included paying taxes to them. So he made his way north, papal business, you see, and met with Pepin of the Franks. Now Pepin asked the pope something like, you know, if the mayor of the palace is in charge here, and the king is weak and has no power, don't you think the mayor of the palace should just be the king? The Pope said yes, and Pepin crowned himself king of Francia with the Pope's approval. This was a big deal. Of course, he also felt he had royal authority besides, you know, all of his power, because remember, he was the adopted son of Lutpran, so he was, you know, the son of a king. But that's in Francia. Down in Italy, well, the Pope had just made a new friend, one who was very close to him indeed, and owed him his title. The Franks came down, beat up on the Lombards, and got the Pope his lands back. Soon enough, the Lombards became a client kingdom to the Franks in a way. Things continued back and forth for a few years, and while there were alliances, eventually the Romans begged for help again from the Franks. In 774, the new king of the Franks, Charlemagne, came down with an army, besieged Pavia, and defeated the Langobardi. He took the title Rex Langobardorum, King of the Lombards, and added it to his other titles. Charlemagne went to the southern duchies as well, but while they technically submitted to him, they basically remained independent. The Duchy of Benevento remained under Lombard control, and it eventually fractured into rival principalities and counties. These territories, along with some remaining Byzantine holdings in the heel and toe of Italy, stayed independent but very weak and were constantly at war with each other, at least until the Normans showed up in the 11th century, which is detailed in Season 3, Episodes 4 and 5 on Robert Giscard and Roger II. Lutpran was almost able to unite Italy, but he didn't quite get there. He was, however, successful in uniting the Lombard territories. What this may well have done is kept the Byzantine Empire from ever regaining control of Italy. This, in turn, made the Pope turn elsewhere for help, knowing the Eastern Romans could no longer protect Rome. So Lutpran built up Lombard power just enough to bring the Franks crashing down on everyone. The Franks, of course, protected Rome enough that the popes never again considered themselves beholden to Constantinople. This was beneficial for Rome, as the Franks allowed it to grow into something more than just a really important bishopric. 
and it makes another link in the long chain that led to the East-West Schism, the breakup between the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches. But this wasn't something Lutpran or anyone else in his lifetime considered. It was a far-off consequence. In his lifetime, he brought together a fractured kingdom and allowed it to thrive well past what probably should have been its expiration date. He was very likely the greatest of the Langobard kings, and thus he was venerated by his people. According to Paul the deacon, quote, He was indeed a man of much wisdom, very religious, and a lover of peace, shrewd in counsel, powerful in war, merciful to offenders, chaste, modest, prayerful in the night watches, generous in charities, ignorant of letters indeed, yet worthy to be likened to philosophers, a supporter of his people, an increaser of the law, unquote. They really did like him. Lutpran was ultimately unsuccessful in his main goal, which was to unite the Italian peninsula. He was, however, a remarkable man, another great king who was once an exiled young prince with little chance of survival in his own country, who became one who united a kingdom and brought it to the height of its power. Next episode, we'll fast forward about five centuries to the eastern Mediterranean, where a slave soldier rose up the ranks of the army to become a king, and in doing so was able to stem the tide of the most powerful military empire the world had seen for centuries. Thanks for listening.